He was born into wealth and social status, the son of a prosperous merchant whose business had earned the family a fair amount of both money and power. They lived in a place that had quite a reputation. According to one biographer, his hometown, quote, was frequently referred to as a new Babylon, a place of wild debauchery where murder and street fights to the death were commonplace. Revenge was considered a right vendetta, almost a sacred duty. Like many young men of his era and social station, he dreamed of military glory, but before he he tried his hand at war, he spent years partying as an almost prodigal son, wasting his parents' money on what was later referred to in official church documents, mind you, as the seductions of the world. When he did go off to fight, he was not successful. In his first military action, he was injured and captured. Before his release was negotiated, he would languish in prison for a year, contracting malaria, which permanently impacted his health. By the age of 23, which would turn out to be more than halfway through his life, he was a failure in war, debilitated by his misadventure. He was also a disappointment to his parents, having done nothing but squander their wealth and having excelled in nothing but debauchery for which his hometown was famous. At this low point of his life, he heard a a call from Jesus that radically changed him, transforming him into one of the most captivating, charming, compelling, and memorable figures in Christian history. His theology And much more importantly, his example is our focus for today. This is the fifth and final week of our Easter season sermon series called Faith Matters. We've been talking about why we believe people need a faith foundation, why a church home, in our view, is essential to living a life of belonging and meaning and purpose. Our frame of reference throughout this series has been a recent uh, research study from the Gallup organization revealing that only 47% of Americans consider themselves to be members of a church, synagogue, or mosque. There are, of course, a whole host of reasons for this decline. What we've been talking about is the good news that we have to offer to the 53% of Americans who do not have a church home yet. For the first three weeks of this series, we talked about the theological foundations of our faith, our common humanity, that we're all created in the image and likeness of God, our common problem, which is sin, and our common solution, which is the redemption offered to us in Christ. And then last week, we talked about our common home, which is to say the the community that we find in our local congregation. Today, we're talking about our common mission. And we'll once again be turning to the Acts of the Apostles as our biblical guide. The book of Acts is the story of the earliest days of the church, and it gives us a glimpse into the earliest theology of our faith as the apostles were trying to make sense of what God had done in Christ and how they were to live out their faith. Our passage for today, the first one, is one of the recommended lectionary readings for this Easter season. So we'll be in Acts chapter 4 verses 32 to 37. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Acts. 
Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So last week we read the first of several summaries in the book of Acts about what life was like in that earliest Christian community. We heard about how the community studied and worshipped and broke bread together in fellowship. Today, we're actually reading the next two summaries, which tell us about how the community of the church was also concerned with the needs of the people. When I think about what it means to be the church, a helpful metaphor for me is that we start by looking up, metaphorically, of course, remembering in uh, as we do, that our first and primary devotion is to the God revealed in Jesus. And then uh, we look around, gathering in a community of faith that helps us to grow spiritually, helps us to grow according to what Jesus called the two great commandments, loving God and loving others. And as we grow in the faith, uh, the Holy Spirit transforms us. It's uh, what we would consider to be sanctification. In the words of the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, In this transformation, we're all going on to perfection, is the Methodist phrase, growing towards perfect love for God and neighbor. And then, having looked up and having looked around, we look out, discerning ways that we can partner with God in the transformation of the world, which is to say that we serve others as our response, as one of our responses to the gift of God's transforming grace. In his commentary on this passage from Acts, United Methodist Bishop Will Willimon says this, or he writes this, the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. The mission of the United Methodist Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Here at Christ United, we interpret that through our mission statement, loving God, serving others, transforming lives. And if you've been around for very long, you know that an essential part of our DNA as a congregation, an important part of our heritage and history here at Christ United is living lives of service. You know, we take this so seriously that we have an entire program area here at church called Serving Others. Many of you, of course, are deeply involved in some of our ministries. Some ministries take place here on campus, like Project Hope. That's a a life coaching and mentoring program that helps families transform their lives through practical life skills like budgeting, for example. 
We have school partnerships with Dooley Elementary and a new one with Frankfurt Middle School that begins next school year. Those partnerships help support teachers and students in a, in a variety of ways. We work in our local community through ministries like the Rebuilding Faith Team and the Men's Service Group that helps uh, that help homeowners like with repairs and uh, light construction projects, maintenance projects around their houses. We're in ministry with the homeless in Collin County through projects like the Plano Overnight Warming Station and Streetside Showers and Sandwich Blessings and Snack Packs. We go out of state and even out of the country sometimes with the Vision of Light team, which provides prescription eyeglasses to those in need. That's an incredible ministry of our church. The list is long. I could go on and on listing the projects and ministries that we have here at Christ United. Service is so much a part of our identity, and we believe that it's so important to our faith formation that we're ending this sermon series about why faith matters with a focus on it. Which brings me back to our theologian for today. Each week throughout this series, we've highlighted a different Christian theologian over the centuries of the church's history, someone uh, who helps us to think through specific aspects of our theology. And as I said at the beginning, today we're talking about one of the most captivating, one of the most charming, one of the most compelling figures in our faith history. Francis of Assisi was not a theologian per se. He was not an academic, he was not a bishop, he was not an activist. He was not scholarly, he was not especially, well, uh, especially learned, he wasn't even really all that religious, until at age 23, when at the low point of his life, having failed in war, having wasted too many years on the seductions of the world, Francis wandered one fall afternoon into a decrepit, abandoned church called San Damiano, According to Donald Spoto in his exceptional biography, Reluctant Saint, quote, over the abandoned altar, a crucifix had somehow survived the decay. Painted on linen, stretched over a taut walnut frame, it was a striking image in the tradition of 12th century Syrian-influenced iconography, the eyes of Christ gazing serenely and directly toward the viewer. In the stillness of the small church, Francis felt, as an early source described, different from when he had entered. And then the image of Christ crucified spoke to him in a tender and kind voice. Francis, don't you see that my house is being destroyed? Go then and rebuild it for me. We'll come back to Francis shortly. Let's turn now to our second Scripture reading for today. This is the next chapter of Acts, the next summary of life in the church. This is chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. Listen again, friends, for the word of God. Now many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. A great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits. 
and they were all cured. Amen. Every year, the Acts of the Apostles are featured. They're the featured readings for the Easter season. And what strikes me every time I read Acts is how outward-focused the early church was. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, they embodied the ministry of Christ. And of course, the Apostle Paul would famously refer to the church as the body of Christ in the world. Following Jesus to the best of their ability and understanding, their ministry in those early days was all about redemption and forgiveness and compassion and service. Their preaching of the gospel was always accompanied by action. Francis would literally rebuild the church at San Damiano. In fact, his younger protege, St. Clair, would live at San Damiano for 42 years. But between the two of them, Francis and Claire would found religious orders for men and women dedicated to living the kind of transformed lives that are only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because Francis quickly realized that Christ's call on his life was actually not about church buildings at all. You probably know at least some of his story. Francis is considered the patron saint of Italy, the patron saint of ecology, like the the natural environment, the patron saint of animals. His connection with animals and with the environment is legendary. Based on his reading of the Gospels, he desired to live as Christ-like a life as he could, caring for the sick and caring for those in need all the time without reservation without hesitation. You may not know, it's a charming part of this story, it's a kind of impressive part of this story. He traveled to Egypt to try to convert the Muslim sultan and thus end the crusades. That's how committed he was to peace. He even gave us the gift of the nativity scene of Christ's birth, one of the most recognizable religious symbols in the world still today. We talked about that back during Advent. He was canonized as a saint just two years after his death, and has been one of the most respected and even venerated figures in Christian history ever since. But as the title of Donald Spoto's biography, Reluctant Saint, implies, Francis had no such lofty ambitions once Jesus got hold of him that afternoon in San Damiano. From that moment on, he only wanted to follow in the footsteps of Christ as faithfully as he could. The rule of life that he wrote for his order of the Friars Minor begins this way, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, this is the life of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not a rule for living. This is not the regulations that you'll follow as part of this order. This is what the life of the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like in practice. For Francis, the life of the gospel meant the transformed life, and he invited others to join him on that journey. This simple man born into wealth chose poverty. This prominent son born into status chose humility. This profligate hedonist chose simplicity. This young man who had yearned for the glory of war earnestly worked for peace. This self-centered sinner who by his own account, had wasted the first half of his life 
gave himself completely to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the second half of his life. And I have to say that of all the theologians and all the preachers and all the mystics and all the devoted lay people who have led the Christian movement since the time of the Acts of the Apostles, I count Francis of Assisi as one of my, my three spiritual heroes and the most captivating to me of the three. I'm challenged by the life and the witness and the preaching and the theology of Martin Luther King Jr. He helps me see the world uh, and its challenges through a very different set of eyes and experiences. I'm formed, of course, by the ministry and preaching and theology of John Wesley, the founder of the movement in which I have found my spiritual home. He helps me to see the world and its challenges through the lens of God's grace, which is the starting, the mid, and the end point of Methodist theology. I love both MLK and John Wesley, and I'm incredibly impacted by both of them, but I'm inspired by Francis, by this flawed, simple character who had made half a lifetime's worth of mistakes before he experienced the risen Christ that afternoon in San Damiano, an encounter that, that he allowed to transform him forever. I'm inspired by Francis, not because I'm interested in a vow of poverty. <laughs> Some of those passages from Acts leave me a little uncomfortable. Uh, I'm too much of a capitalist. I'm too much of a coffee snob. I'm too much, um, I'm, at, I ha- I'm too comfortable with the blessings in my life to uh, embrace poverty like Francis. I'm inspired by Francis, not because I'm a pacifist, either by temperament or inclination, as much as I admire Francis's uh, ironic nature. I'm inspired by Francis not because I would choose a monastic life. My wife and kids are my world. Instead, I'm inspired by Francis because his life and his example show me, perhaps most clearly and certainly most radically, what a life of prayerful devotion to our common mission looks like, our common mission, which is to live for God and for others as best we can today in our present circumstances. And I think about the good news that we have to offer to the 53% of Americans who do not yet have a church home. I, I think about that, and I think that common mission is an essential part of our story. You know, our theology uh, lays the foundation upon which our lives are built, and our faith community gives us a home. This is where we grow. This is where we are nurtured and sustained through the ups and downs of life's journey. And our mission helps give us purpose as we all seek lives of meaning along our spiritual journeys, all of which, it seems to me, is a pretty compelling story to tell. Friends, our faith truly does matter for all the reasons that we've explored over these five weeks and countless more. We could do several sermon series about why our faith matters. We have an important story to tell to an increasingly secular nation, a nation that needs the good news that is ours to share. There's a a paraphrase of Franciscan theology that You may have heard, I've said it several times. It's unclear if he actually put it this way, 
but it's a beautiful summary both of Franciscan spirituality and our common mission. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. May it be so. Amen.